In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, over the next few weeks of the season of Epiphany, we turn our attention to St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And so the Apostle was writing to the Corinthians in this letter in an attempt to put out all kinds of fires in the church. All kinds of false belief had arisen. There were significant scandal in the church. There were divisions, there were controversies, and it was all messy. And so Paul is dealing with a pernicious belief in the section that we get today in our second reading. It was a question about what it means to be called by the gospel. You see that theme throughout our readings. We had the call of the prophet Samuel. We had the call of Jesus to Philip to follow me. And in Corinth, this call had become confused because some in the church had come to believe that their call to the freedom of the gospel meant that they were free to do whatever they wanted with their bodies. In particular, we find out that they had come to believe that they had the sexual liberty to have a relationship with whomever they wanted in a manner that their culture found acceptable. And so this false belief took root in abusing the gospel call. So some in Corinth had heard Paul's preaching. They heard Paul say that Christ had taken their sin, that Christ had freed them from the law. And so they thought they had the liberty to do what they wanted with their bodies. What does it matter, they wondered. I know I am covered by God's grace. I know God made me a new creation. Therefore, I can pursue whatever desires, whatever pleasures that I would like, even if they are sinful. What they forgot is that all of us still have indwelling sin of the flesh. We still have original sin. The old Adam that makes us an enemy of God clings to the Christian. And the freedom of the gospel is the freedom to love our neighbor as ourselves. It is not the freedom to indulge that indwelling sin. And so with this attitude, Paul implies that he has heard that there are members of the church who are having relations with prostitutes. Now we hear that and we're shocked because we know Christians ought not to sleep with prostitutes. That's obvious. And in our society, prostitution is illegal in most places. It is very much taboo. It is a shady pursuit. And it's also widely caught up in the evils of human trafficking, of drug abuse, and so on. But this wasn't really the attitude of the ancient Greek society. In ancient Greek society, prostitution was a relatively normal and accepted behavior. In fact, the mainstream biblical scholar Richard Hayes from Duke Divinity School writes, the Corinthian men who frequented prostitutes were not asserting some unheard of new freedom. They were merely insisting on their right to continue participating in a pleasurable activity that was entirely normal in their own culture. And so in 1 Corinthians 6, it's not just that the apostle is pointing out prostitution as the problematic sin. He's broadly identifying their sin as fornication. And that's evident, of course, in verse 18, where he writes, shun fornication. Literally in the Greek, flee fornication, run from it. And so I know fornication is one of those church words that we never actually use in the real world. So it might be helpful to say just exactly what fornication means. So fornication is the Greek word pornia. 
and it's broadly translated as sexual misconduct. More to the point, this word is meant to cover all sexual intimacy except between a husband and a wife. Paul uses the sin of engaging with prostitutes as an example of sexual activity that would have been seen as relatively harmless. It was a culturally acceptable practice. Lots of people did it. They were free to do so in their culture. In fact, engaging with a prostitute was more acceptable in that culture than sleeping with an unmarried woman who was yet to be betrothed in marriage. And so it doesn't exactly translate to our culture and our society. So when you hear that word fornication here and elsewhere in St. Paul, you ought to think of sexual activity outside of marriage of a man and a woman. Having sex with someone you are not married to is fornication. It is a sin, and it is a sin that Paul tells us to flee. The apostle here will helpfully explain why this particular sin is problematic in the church. And he's making a claim that's radically countercultural to modern American sensibilities. Paul says that when you were baptized and the Holy Spirit was given to you, your body was no longer your own. He writes, do you know that your bodies are members of Christ? In other words, you are connected and united to Christ. And if you are united to him, your body is his. The body is meant for the Lord, he writes in verse 13. And so Paul argues that when you have sex with someone in a manner in which the Lord has not blessed, that you're defiling yourself. You're defiling your partner, and you are even defiling the body of Christ. And so we are reminded from Genesis 2 that the act of sex makes the man and the woman one flesh. God designed this to be an act of his blessing. A blessing in which a man and a woman make a promise to give their bodies and their lives to one another until death parts them. Sex is meant to be the act of intimacy for the man and the woman who intend to become one in order to be a family within God's blessing. And for that reason, it's a powerful desire. It's a driver of our hearts, our emotions, our bodies. God has made sex to be good. It's meant to be a powerful connector of man and woman. And because of its goodness, it also becomes the area in which we are most at risk when we put it outside of God's blessing. So therefore, what Paul is getting at is that we are not free to use our bodies to indulge in sinful passions. Instead, we are to use our bodies as the Lord has intended. Otherwise, as Paul notes, we're pursuing something that not only puts ourselves in serious danger, but also our partner and the whole church. But I don't want to get too far from the text we have this morning, because Paul is not addressing a wider culture. He's not fighting a culture war. Right, we know that our culture and that American society is confused and terribly mixed up about what God has created sex and marriage to be. But Paul's not addressing the pagan culture in this chapter. Rather, he's addressing Christians, and especially Christians who believe that because God is forgiving and God is gracious, that they have the liberty to engage in sinful behavior. And he is warning them of the great danger they are putting themselves in. The life of the faith, the life of the baptized, 
according to St. Paul, is not a life of celebrating sin. Instead, it's the life of daily receiving God's mercies and thereby daily killing our sinful desires. In the small catechism, Luther describes the life of the baptized Christian like this. Baptism indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires, and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. And this was the problem with the Corinthians. They did not see their gospel freedom as the opportunity to daily emerge as a new creation, the new creation that God desired them to be. But they saw the gospel freedom as their opportunity to indulge sinful passions, and specifically to have sex in a manner that they found suitable. They used their freedom to indulge their sin, not to fight it. And the Corinthians even had the same kind of cover we might expect to hear today. Everyone in our culture does it. This is just the way the world is now. Why would God want me to give up something that brings me pleasure and makes me happy? And so we want to listen to St. Paul's warning. Right? And we can listen even to Martin Luther's warning, who on this passage wrote, It is our duty to teach men to purge out the old leaven. We must tell them that they are not Christians, but devoid of the faith when they yield to the wantonness of the flesh and persevere in sin against the warning of the conscience. We should teach that such sins are so much more vicious when they're practiced under the name of the gospel, for that is blaspheming the name of Christ and of the gospel. And so I, I want to conclude this with great reverence and understanding it's not an always, an always easy thing to hear. But if you're a Christian who is engaging in sexual sin, if you have a sexual relationship with someone outside of marriage, it's time to flee from it, as St. Paul says. Don't use your liberty in Christ to excuse sinful desires. If you're indulging, you're indwelling sin proudly. If you're proud of your lust, if it's something that you're finding comfort in, then the word tells us it's time to flee. And just because the culture overlooks it, and just because we don't live in an age that names sin for what it is, does not mean that we are free as Christians to indulge in it. Flee from sin, as St. Paul warns. But more important than fleeing from sin is fleeing to Christ. If your conscience is burdened, if there's part of you that knows you come under the condemnation of Scripture, I want you to listen to me carefully, because by the authority of Jesus Christ, and in his stead, and for his sake, your sins are forgiven. You are a new creation. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are now one who lives to the glory of God. Put your faith in him who has taken your sin from you. Amen.